start recording just in case. Okay, here we go. Uh... Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. We've had a little summer vacation, and now here we are for the season premiere of our next season, which uh, is very fitting because we've left behind now the Torah. We're moving on to the next great section of the Old Testament as divided up by the ancient Hebrews. We did weave in one other book from the third section of the Old Testament. We finished the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the the five books of Moses, and then we inserted the book of Job, which is actually placed by the Hebrews among the Ketuvim, so among the wisdom writings, the third section, but we wove it in there because it was a good place to put it, because it does speak of a man from the time of the patriarchs, the great long-suffering Job. And now, though, we begin the next great session, which we're not accustomed to refer to in this way. This is the Nevi'im, which is simply the prophets. We're not used to thinking of the Old Testament in that way, that as soon as we're done with Moses, with the Torah, the law, or the teaching, we now proceed immediately to the prophets. Well, but that's important for our way of thinking about the Old Testament today. Usually we think of these as the historical books. That's how it's traditionally classed in our Bibles, in our Catholic Bibles. We now have the books of the history that comes after the time of Moses, after the time of the patriarchs and Moses. But for the Hebrews, this was already the prophets, which is very fitting for us to refer to in this way, because we are, as always, seeking Christ on every page of the Old Testament, and we find that with this first book of the prophets, it's called the former prophets, we will find Christ, indeed. So I say the former prophets, because that's the book of Joshua, which we're going to consider today, and the book of Judges afterwards, and The book of Ruth, we will consider there, as it's usually placed in our Bibles, even though that is, for the Hebrews, part of the Ketuvim, it's part of the wisdom writings, it's a a story on the side for, for them. But then Samuel and the books of Kings, those are all the former prophets before you get to the major prophets, which we know about. We'll talk about that later on. Right now, we consider the first of these former prophets. Remembering the idea of of a prophet is not just whether we consider in Hebrew or in Greek or Latin this this word prophet that we're accustomed to use does have the meaning of someone who speaks about things that are going to happen. That's true. But it's also simply someone who speaks for God, who speaks on his behalf. That's what we're going to think about now, especially, even though there are quite a few things in this book of Joshua that are going to be very prophetic. Now, Joshua is the main figure of this book, which takes its name from him. We first encounter him in the Torah. We encounter him as he's of the tribe of Ephraim, so the tribe of Joseph of Ephraim, and his original name is Hoshea, which is just the same as the, the prophet that we'll encounter later on. If you look in your Bibles, you find the prophet Hoshea or Hosea or Ose, 
right? all those different ways of spelling that minor prophet. And that name simply means salvation. But Moses in the book of Numbers, he passed over this briefly way back then. Moses in the book of Numbers changes his name. Name changes are always very important, right? See name changes going on in the Old Testament and in the New. So we you know Abraham became Abram became Abraham, became the father of many nations, right? And now this name salvation will be changed to to Yehoshua, which is the Lord, that is the unspeakable name of God. So he who is, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And this name later on will be pronounced in, in Aramaic, so centuries later as Yeshua and then presented in the Greek New Testament as Jesus, as Jesus. So, after the sense of incompletion that we have at the end of the Torah, where Moses, after all that he's done, does not even get to enter the Promised Land. He does not even get to bring the Hebrew people into the Promised Land. As St. Paul tells us, with most of these people, the Lord was not well pleased. And so, in fact, of the original generation... That original generation does not enter the promised land even. It's for the second generation to do so, but Moses does not get to lead them in. So he dies on Mount Nebo. He gets to look down at the promised land, just as you can do today if you climb up Mount Nebo. You can look out and see exactly what Moses saw. He did not get to enter. So there we have Moses, the lawgiver of the old law, does not bring the people to the promised land. So Whose task will that be? Well, this man whose name is the Lord saves. This man whose name is Joshua or Jesus. Remember, for our fathers in the faith who read, who read the Greek Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, it simply translates it as Jesus, just like in the New Testament. New Testament's written in Greek. In the Old Testament, in the version that all the church fathers read, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's spelled the same way. So when they speak about Joshua, they look at they see they just see the name Jesus. So they speak about there's the Jesus of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New. And so the first great thing we can say about this Jesus of the Old Testament is that it is his task now. He is the one who will fulfill what Moses could not fulfill. So what Moses, the giver of the old law, could not fulfill, now Joshua will fulfill. And so that's what we find at the very beginning of the book, is we find him now making the preparations to seize the promised land, to go in and take it from those who are currently inhabiting it, so from the Canaanites. So this land where which the Hebrew people have not inhabited ever since they left there, ever since Joseph invited them all to live in Egypt, now they come back, still bearing Joseph's body with them, and... One thing we notice right away is, remember everything that happened to Moses, right? All the rebellions, just constant. Rebellions turning to idols, everything else. Moses just he had to deal with a truly stiff-necked people. Things never went well. Never went well under Moses. It's not to blame Moses, but things never went well with him. And in the end, there's the episode, the very mysterious episode, which we discussed with the water from the rock. And because of what happens there, God does not even allow Moses to enter. So he does not allow Moses to enter. And 
that will be for Joshua to do. So the first thing we really remark here is that, wow, things go really well with Joshua. Compared to what was going on under Moses, things just go off to a great start. Things seem to move along very well. So what's the first thing that he does, very important and mysterious episode, is the first thing he does is he sends spies into the promised land. He sends spies. The first big target here, the first big menace that it faces them is the great city of Jericho. And we hear about Jericho in the New Testament sometimes, right? But, so this city of Jericho, well, Joshua sends spies there. And a woman actually helps them. So a woman will be the one who helps them here. And what do they say about this woman? They say the Bible refers to her as a harlot. So she's a harlot. And, and she's the one who agrees to help them. And so in return for that, they swear that they will not harm her or her family, that they will escape alive in the conquest of Jericho. How? We'll see in a moment here. I just want to make a reference here. The woman's name is Rahab, so R-A-H-A-B. And it may not mean anything to you, may not remember, but she does figure pretty prominently if we read in the New Testament, the very opening verses of the New Testament, we encounter her. Why? Amazingly, she's going to be in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find, how on earth does that happen? So this woman who's not even of the Hebrew people and who's described as a harlot, it says, no, what does it say in verse 5 of St. Matthew? So Salmon, yes, it's spelled just like salmon. So uh, he's not a fish, he's a man. And he begets Boaz, or Boaz, of Rahab. So she is going to be the mother of Boaz, whom we'll encounter soon enough. Because it goes on to talk about another woman whom we'll encounter very soon in our episodes, Ruth. Ruth, who also, as we shall see, is not a Hebrew. So these two women, St. Matthew makes a point of inserting them into the genealogy to say that they're part of our Lord's lineage, that our Lord's line comes from these two women who aren't even Hebrews. So when you see that Rahab at the beginning of St. Matthew, that's, that's who we're talking about right now. And so what did these spies promise her? And because, they, because she helps them and is going to help them with the conquest, what do they say to her? They say, yes, we will save you. What you have to do is What's going to happen is we're going to let you down. How are we going to let you down out of the city, you and your family? So we're going to let you down by a scarlet cord. So we always stop, right, when we see these things in the Old Testament. Why, why, why after so many thousands of years, do we have these little details that are spared for us, you know, that have been kept all the way until now? So why this scarlet cord? Well, of course, for our fathers in the faith, it was very important. They knew this had to have a higher meaning already when we consider what's happening here, we consider these how this idea of deliverance, right, what has already happened, being delivered from total destruction, right? A small number being delivered from total destruction. Already, there were those who were delivered by wood, right? They were delivered by the wood of the ark in the great flood. And we already saw those were delivered by blood, right? Blood spread on the posts, right? 
posts of the door, right, for the exodus. So on the night of the Passover, spreading blood on the posts, once again on the wood of the posts, was what saved the Hebrew people from destruction on the night when the angel came and slew all the firstborn of Egypt. And so they escaped then from Egypt. And now it's this scarlet cord, which, of course, our fathers and the faithful interpret to say this. This is very clear. Why, why does it speak of a scarlet cord? Because the scarlet cord that will hang out from the city, it will stream out, and that's how they will make their escape, Rahab and her family. It prefigures the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ and his passion that will deliver all, all sinners, any repentant sinners, you know, even those who are not part of the Hebrew faith, of what was the true faith up until the time of our Lord, any, any people of goodwill who repent of their sins will be delivered by this blood of Christ, people from all nations. So that's what's symbolized there by this scarlet cord, which will deliver Rahab and her people. But now, what happens first? First, they have to enter this land, and they have to cross a river to do that to cross the river Jordan. And in order to cross the river Jordan, what happens? They've already had some experience passing through water, some very good ones, right? That went very well with, with Moses, so going through the Red Sea. So the parting of the Red Sea, which we already knew, uh, just like the flood, the parting of the Red Sea is also a prefiguration of baptism, and so we will find that again now, because after all, the Jordan will be the site of what? Centuries later, that's where we'll fi- first find out about baptism, because of John the Baptist, and then finally the baptism of our Lord himself in the Jordan. So now it's getting closer, every prefiguration getting a little bit closer. And we know, as we've already learned, that Christ and his church are one, Christ and his sacraments are one. So whenever we speak about the coming of sacraments, it's just the same as speaking about the coming of Christ. So it's always interchangeable. So whenever we speak about one, we're speaking about the other. So here we have then Joshua leading the people and the Ark of the Covenant, right, which contains the old law, contains the commandments. And now they pass through the water. And what do the waters do? They, They stop, right? They stop for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, not all fathers extend this prefiguration this far. Some do, but some, uh, certainly some of the saints do, most notably our dear St. Francis de Sales, who says that, of course, in this, this passage, we must understand it not only as prefiguring uh, baptism, not only the coming of our Lord, but even as, by extension, of course, the coming of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And how and what way? By her immaculate conception, her immaculate entry into the world. Because just as he says, the Ark of the Covenant passed through the waters of the Jordan, and they stopped short without touching it. So too, he says, when the waters of original sin rushed in over the conception of Mary, they stopped short so that she could pass from nothingness into existence, untouched by, by the waters. So we see that it always, always can be extended in that way to the Blessed Virgin because the incarnation, the Lord, when God from all eternity decreed the incarnation, he decreed in the same way, the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that the Incarnation could take place. So I just want you to keep be aware of the order of things now. So we have this 
prefiguration of baptism in, in the Jordan, and now the passing into the promised land. And now things are going to start to look a little bit like the Acts of the Apostles. You might have been thinking that already a little bit, right? Maybe what we reading up top. Well, what if, if that's what we have first is the old law, and then we have first the promulgation of the old law. Then what happens after? Once they have the old law and start to live in their promised land, well, isn't that a little bit like the preaching of the gospel? And then after that, the Acts of the Apostles when they run around. You know, it's sort of the structure is a little bit the same in the New Testament. Maybe well, absolutely, it's the same. Uh, they certainly think of it that way. We know the evangelists did. So St. Matthew very much thinks of his gospel as that. That's why he divides it into five sections. So five sections that preparing for that. And then what do we have? Then we have the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's going to be very similar now because what are we going to have here? It's another episode which is very mysterious because what does he say in chapter 4? Now that they've passed into the Promised Land through the Jordan, the Lord says to Joshua now, he says, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And so Joshua does this. He takes these stones. Now, you may remember we've talked about stones several times already, right? It was very important for us because we're looking for Christ all the time in the Old Testament. And the, our exciting moment in the Old Testament, we wanted to find, well, when's the first time we actually hear about this idea of anointing at all? This idea of a Christ or anointing anything, right? Well, the first time is what? It says when Jacob has his vision, right, of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. What does he do? He's, he was sleeping on a rock. Remember, he's sleeping on a stone. It's very comfortable. And Kind of like those barley pillows, right? Like the people have, right? right. They're nice. I mean, you take them camping, they're pretty good, actually. But so he he sleeps on this stone, and afterwards, what does he do? He anoints the stone. He anoints the stone. And that's the first time we hear about anointing in the Old Testament. So this word that's going to be used later for the anointed one, we'll see when we start to encounter those who are anointed ones. Right, we've already seen with the priests, and we're going to encounter another anointed one in, in the coming books. But the first thing that ever gets anointed is a, is a stone. And so now we find stones again. We had that anointed stone back then, and now he says, take 12 stones. What are we doing with 12 stones now? So these 12 stones are supposed to be laid now in the Jordan. And these stones shall be a memorial for the people. Whenever they're asked to say, what do these stones mean to you? You should tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the sons of Israel a memorial forever. So again, there's a prefiguration here. Very important because of what's going to come next. It's going to mirror, uh, or rather our history, our first part of sacred history is going to mirror what happens in here. This prefigures... According to the teaching of the fathers, the 12 apostles and their mission now of preaching the baptism. First, we had the anointed one, that stone back then. Now we have these 12 stones. And these 12 stones are the 12 apostles who are going to preach baptism now throughout the world. Especially because of exactly what happens next, which is not what we were expecting. What are we, we weren't expecting this to happen. We're sort of reminded of something 
maybe we just completely passed over without noticing is that what's there's something wrong with this generation that just entered they can't really go any farther with anything they're going to do because as we see what's going to happen from now on is going to be more and more liturgical this takeover of the promised land is going to be it's not going to be a normal military expedition and there's something holding them up now big problem before they can go any farther so before they can enter into this promised land and this new life in the promised land well the men of this generation weren't ever circumcised right they were never circumcised so that was a negligence all that time of the wandering in the desert the 40 years of wandering the generation that had been born after the generation in egypt they were not circumcised and so now it's going to have to happen now so right most unfortunate for them so that's what happens in chapter 5 so before they can do anything else why because if they don't have that they can't do any of the liturgical functions they can't perform any of the rites of the law of moses unless the men are circumcised and so now they're circumcised all of them all right so we'll pass over some of the details but we get now then toward the close of chapter 5 and what happens now so the circumcising of the nation was done what does the lord say now Again, every little detail matters for us. We see this. We really should note it down. Should, you should be, these things should be able to jump out at you right away. You should at least hear something. Oh, no, that's definitely, that's definitely about Christ. Because what does the Lord say now? He says to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the repro- reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place where this all took place, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day, which means roll away. Roll away. What does it sound like? Roll away. What do, we, what do we remember being rolled away? So remember, we're talking about the stone that was anointed, and then we have the 12 stones are set up. And what does he say now? Because of what they've done now, now they've, had, now they've had circumcision, and what happens because of that? Now he says the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. Well, what gets rolled away in the New Testament, right? All right so a stone, right? The stone from the tomb will be rolled away. And, and why the placement of this episode of circumcision here because they enter now just as just as they in order now that they've entered the promised land in order to proceed any further and do what's going to be necessary for this liturgical conquest of the promised land right? so in the new testament what happens as soon uh, at the very beginning of the acts of the apostles what are the what does saint peter say to everybody you know, so the men who hear his first sermon well they're they're contrite in heart and they repent and they say well what must we do and he says well you all first thing you all have to do is be baptized so remember that circumcision and saint paul will talk about this at great length in his epistles that circumcision prefigures baptism that circumcision it says was the putting away of of flesh and he says so now too for us in the new testament baptism is the putting away of flesh and living the life of the spirit and so they all have to be circumcised with, you know, for us prefiguring baptism, in order to do what? What comes exactly after this? As soon as they've received this sacrament of the Old Testament, what do they get to do now? Now they are fit to do what? Something they should have been able to do long before, but now it's taken them so long to get here. They can finally do something so important. What are they going to celebrate? 
now this generation finally gets to celebrate what's that so important feast that first led them out of Egypt in the first place? Passover. So now they get to celebrate the feast of the Paschal Lamb with unleavened bread. Finally, now they're fit to do that since they are circumcised. And they do that. And what happens now that they celebrate this Passover? Another important prefiguration. So close of chapter 5 here. Once they do that, something stops coming for them that has been coming all this time. Do you remember how they didn't starve to death and the all those years of wandering in the wilderness? Right. They received bread from heaven, manna. They received bread from heaven. They received manna. Well, now, now that they've celebrated the Passover, now it says, now you're going to partake of the fruits of this land. And so now the manna ceases. So the next day, that's it. And they will no longer eat manna. So no longer this bread from heaven. So what does this prefigure for us? Because our Lord says this is what's going to happen. He said, yes, they ate manna in the desert, but now you're going to receive a new bread. Now that's, that's no longer going to be here for you. That's what the fathers received. They received manna in the desert, but now you're going to receive the true bread of life. And so once our Lord does that, once our Lord has his Passover... Once he has his passion and his resurrection, what's going to cease? The entire old law, right? And all the sacrifice of the old law. Everything that was there only to prepare for the coming of Christ, then that will cease, as certain other prophets will predict. We'll see much later on. That will cease. And so now it will be time only for the new sacrifice of Christ, and we will be fed by the true bread of heaven. Incidentally, you know from your history, right, what, what happens when that sacrifice ceases. So it keeps going on for a little while, doesn't it? After Christ and his ascension, the sacrifice in the temple, it'll, it'll keep going on for a while. It'll keep going on for a while. As a matter of fact, as we'll see, it goes, all the way, it goes on all the way up until August 5th, 70 AD. It's all the way until the day before, day before Titus and his armies finally penetrate the inner sanctum of, of the city and it's destroyed <clears throat> and so that too is an important part of our of our lord's prophecies right that that's that truly brings the old testament to a close it's important now for what we're going to see because what happens now now we're going to hear about the destruction of another city right? and before that we have a joshua now truly now in his role of prophet he's going to have a vision so Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. Joshua did so. It's the same thing we heard the Lord say to Moses in the burning bush. Right? He said, take off your shoes, standing on holy land. Who is this man? Right? Who is this man? Well, the earliest father said this is St. Michael. St. Michael the archangel. He says he's a commander of the army of the Lord. It's this man who hears, he gives them this, this vision right before now the conquest of 
of Jericho. Now, what's really important about this conquest of Jericho? Well, as I said, they're not actually going to fight. How are they going to get the walls of the city breached? How are they going to get in there? Are they just going to have catapults and have a long, you know, year-long siege? What are they going to do to get into this? What are they going to do? No. They're going to have a procession. Just kind of a liturgical procession. So, in chapter 6, that's what we learn about. It says, so the Lord says to Joshua, and Joshua, he's, again, he's good. He just does whatever the Lord says. Straight as an arrow, says, look, I have given, see, I have given into your hand Jericho with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. You shall do this for six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city shall fall down flat, the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So Joshua has them do exactly as the Lord commanded. So they persist now with the ark, and this is what happens. And then, indeed, the walls do come down. And so they take the city. And the only ones who are spared are, as promised, Rahab the harlot and all of her household. So they go down by the scarlet cord and are saved. So what exactly does this prefigure you may remember from an earlier episode, we talked about the senses of Scripture, right? And sometimes, well, there's the literal sense, simply what, what happens, right? And then After that, though, we have all the spiritual senses, so we know that there's often a moral sense that is prominent, which is, what does this mean for the individual soul? What does this mean for me and my own spiritual life? Hmm. We're going to see a little bit of that in a moment, but... And there's also simply the allegorical sense, which is, is where do we find Christ in the church, his sacraments, where do we find them in what's being told here in the sacred text. Then there's also, as a special part of that, what's called the anagogical, which is where does eternity figure in to all this? So sometimes the anagogical is a little more prominent, and this is one of those passages. Right? Why? Because it's definitely talking about an end. It's talking about a destruction, so the destruction of Jericho prefigures, prefigures two things. Well, for us, it speaks, first of all, to, as the fathers will say, it speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem. Right? So this prefigures what's going to happen there. Because what did the Christian forces have to do? What did the church militant have to do to bring down Jerusalem and bring the Old Testament to a close? Well, nothing. Did they have to have an army do it? I think, no. No, they spread throughout the world offering the true sacrifice of Christ in every nation. The true liturgy, that's all they did. And it was the Romans who came and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed it. But just like Jerusalem, Jericho prefigures something else. It's a microcosm, just as we say about Jerusalem, is a microcosm of the universe. And so it's the, it also prefigures the end of the world. So it prefigures how Christ will come in glory. He came 
already with the armies of the Lord of Jericho, he came at Jerusalem. And in there we had the first fulfillment of our Lord's prophecies about the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man with great majesty and power when he destroyed Jerusalem. But even that speaks to a later truth at the end of time when Christ will come in glory as our judge, when then too the world will be destroyed. The world as we know it will be destroyed and Christ will judge us and then the world will be miraculously restored and we'll have the new heavens and the new earth, the true and definitive promised land. <clears throat> Thanks for the water this time. That's certainly the most spectacular of all the conquests of cities and territories here in what is to be the promised land. Maybe I'll take just a little pause here, just say a brief moment to talk about something because it's very important. It comes up quite a bit. We could have a very long conference just about this, and it'll come up again later. I'll perhaps refer back to this, repeat this short lesson, but... If you read closely what goes on with the destruction of Jericho, we already heard that, okay, so Rahab and her family, her household, is Rahab, who amazingly then will marry, will marry a man of the tribe of Judah, or marry Solomon, and, and will become an ancestor, a direct ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. But other than that, everyone, everyone in Jericho is killed. Man, woman, and child. Everyone is killed. And it's not the first, it's not the last time we'll see this in the Old Testament. We'll count it again in the books of, of Samuel. And so this is a, a very important question that comes up. It's come up throughout the generations, but it comes up today because especially as we're not sure it's always exactly what this term means when it says this fell under what's called the harem. So not harem like like a Lord has, you know, with uh, all this, you know, women in his household or something. That's so harem, H-E-R-E-M, is the, is the Hebrew word, and which seems to mean devoted. So devoted to what? It means set aside, devoted, devoted to total destruction. It could be read into the sense of the term, but what we know for sure is that's what happened. So with Jericho, that was the type of warfare that went on here. After the walls fell down, Jericho was completely destroyed. It was never to be remembered. And all the inhabitants were slaughtered. Now, from a moral point of view, this is a great struggle. Certainly, enemies of our faith today bring this up very often. Uh, they say, you know, there, there are books out there. Please don't just go click on Amazon and find them. But there are books that, you know, they just talk about, say, the, the, whatever they want to call it, the most embarrassing passages of the Old Testament, the most uh, condemning passages. Well, they just list things like that. And this, this is one of them. The list is because it's one of the first. They'll list this and say, what? Up until now, we've seen things. Okay, there was the rebellion with the golden calf, and part of the Levitical priest's ordination, as it were, was to go around and slaughter everybody who was involved with the golden calf. But yes, but that was a grave sin of idolatry, and we see that there there was a consequence, a punishment. So for most people, it's easier to get your mind around that than with the harem warfare, because they say, well, yes, but what about women and children? women and children. We can see, perhaps you can consider the men as combatants, um, but with the women and children, they're very difficult to understand. So, 
of all the many explanations that are proffered, I'll just kind of put out two thoughts here. So one, which is a long tradition, and it's taught by St. Thomas Aquinas, so kind of summarized and taught by St. Thomas Aquinas, is that in, in this case, well, God used the Hebrew people as the executioners of his justice. He used them as the executioners of his justice. But just as we would understand, well, if a natural disaster were to have destroyed Jericho, like Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire and brimstone, right? And then we said, well, it was, but I don't know, it was a sinful city, and then we said, well, if, if any just men could be found, they would be spared, but no, so it was destroyed by fire and brimstone. We said, but nevertheless, for us in our moral sense, it can be harder to understand. Say, but yes, but is that quite the same as having human beings do that? Is it quite the same? Fire and brimstone is one thing, but human beings carrying out the, the slaughter of, of an entire population. So one thing to understand is that this was practiced really almost universally. So other people sought to practice it on the Hebrews, and then they in turn practiced it on other peoples. So this happened. It was widespread throughout the ancient world. So it wasn't just a, an idea with the Hebrew people, this idea of devotion to total destruction. It was an idea that was prevalent among the pagan cultures as well. So a final thought that we can add to that then is say, yes, although this may be the way things were carried out, and in this case, yes, the Hebrew people were the executioners of God's justice, one more thought we can remember is that what has been happening ever since the rebellion of Adam and Eve and the promise of the Savior we see that chapter after chapter, things get worse and worse and worse, right? So already we see what happens. So we have, we have after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we have the sin of pride, and then we have envy and murder. And then what do we have right after that? Then we have polygamy, right? And it makes one think of a passage in the New Testament, right? So when the disciples ask our Lord about divorce, and they say, well, we're having trouble with this teaching of yours. You're saying that there can never be any form of divorce. That's joined together forever. can never be, because even Moses and the law has some provisions for divorce. And what does our Lord say? He says, yes, because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I think that's another important thought to add to this, is that even though God may have permitted that the Hebrews take part in this style of warfare at the time, and then in this case be the executioners of his justice, nevertheless, from the beginning, it was not so, which is why with the coming of our Lord, we have another teaching, and that's what leads to finally the, the Catholic doctrine on just war. Because certainly under the Catholic doctrine of just war, this is something we could not do. Right? Something we could not do. So I think that's important just to have that thought as well. That this is nevertheless a time of, we don't have to speak in modernist terms. We have to say about evolution of morals or something. But no, we say that our Lord said this is, it's rather a decay. Right? It's a decay from the, from the pristine state of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and it's still a very corrupted world which can't truly be redeemed until it's redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. So from the beginning, it was not this way, and it will take the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to restore it.
I'd like to pass at this point a couple chapters. So as they continue the conquest, now we come to a very important conquest, a city that's going to be of supreme importance later on. So we already heard about this city much earlier on with its own very good and just king. So in chapter 10 now we hear about the city of Jerusalem. Now we've heard about it up till now as Salem. Right? Do you remember who was the king of Salem way back in the book of Genesis? Melchizedek. Right? Melchizedek, which means king of justice. Right? King of justice, king of the city, which means peace. So Salem. So, well now... This is under the control of a pagan king. And Jerusalem, remember, it's not yet, they're not just looking at this saying, okay, well, here's our capital, let's go take it. No, it's not, it's not there yet in that, in that sense. It's going to take another few books to get there. It's going to take David for this to be set up truly as Jerusalem. David, who mysteriously will speak to us about this figure of Melchizedek and about the order of Melchizedek. So this priesthood that we have forgotten about now for a while as we think of the priesthood of Aaron. And so now we hear that Adonizazek, the king of Jerusalem, he hears about how Joshua, he hears about his conquests, and now he gets with the other kingdoms that are still left, but the kingdom of Gibeon now has surrendered to the Hebrew people, and so they forge an alliance with them, and they get to be their sort of sacristans forever now. They get to take care of a temple worship in exchange for the covenant they formed with them. And so now the Hebrews, once again, are going to have to do battle in order to take these remaining kingdoms and to take Jerusalem. And so now we have one of the most famous episodes in the book of Joshua. Maybe you didn't know this is where this occurs, but you've probably heard about the miracle of the sun. Right. So it's in chapter 10 that, so verse 12, it says, the Lord spoke to Joshua in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the men of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, <clears throat> so excuse me, Joshua spoke to the Lord. So it says, and Joshua then said, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and you moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And so at this battle, the sun stands still and so does the moon. There's no passage of the day. The day it simply remains day until the battle is over. So once again, if we're going to see any prefiguration here, we have to look more to the anagogical. We say, what does this mean here? Well, for the fathers, they say, what, the sun standing still here for us, what does this prefigure? It's because of the order of events we've seen, that after the fall of Jerusalem, now it's the time of the promised land, when they're taking over the promised land. This prefigures the New Testament. What does it mean? So, just as this Joshua of the Old Testament causes the sun to stand still so that they can do battle for as long as they need to, the day won't stop until they finally won the, the battle. Well, so the Joshua of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, will make the sun stand still. He will not cause the sun to set on the New Testament until the spiritual combat is over, until the church militant has accomplished 
its mission. And so this day, this long day we are in, which the apostle speaks about, who says, let us walk as in the day. So why we, And our Lord says, why we still have light. Why well, you still have light, walk in the light. So this is this long day going on, prolonged and prolonged and prolonged and prolonged, now for over 2,000 years, prolonged, and still the sun has not set on this last age of the earth. So we still have this, this time in order to perform the work of the church militant. <clears throat> Move on now again, after the continuance of the conquests, now Israel, and I think I'll show you a map for the next episode once they're all settled in, but now the promised land is going to be divided up amongst all the tribes. So he divided up amongst all the tribes, and the very important part of the land will go, and will, who will stand first in line is the tribe of Judah. So because of its importance, which even was known dimly then, about how important this would be for the coming of the anointed one, the coming of the anointed one, the king, and then finally, ultimately, the Messiah himself. So the territory of Judah will be in the south. It will be in the south. There will be Jerusalem, now conquered. So Jerusalem, which one day will become the capital. And the, excuse me, it's not not definitively conquered yet. It still remains under under people called the, the Jebusites, which will remain until finally it's definitively conquered by David and then becomes the, the capital. But the, this area of the south, and of course includes also Bethlehem, right? right near Jerusalem, which will be the birthplace of the ancestor of our Lord, King David. And so the land will be divided among, amongst the 12 tribes. And then Joshua will end this book in the final chapters, he'll end this book much as he, as the Torah ends. He'll give a sort of last testament. Right? He'll exhort the people. He preaches to them a sermon, and and then renews the covenant with them. So it's very similar to what happens at the end of Deuteronomy. So he gives them this this final exhortation, the reminder of what will happen to them if they do not keep the law which also truly is a prophecy of what's going to happen to the Hebrew people. So, and then included in the chapter 24 in that closing passage, there is this, one of the most famous verses of of Joshua. So starting in verse 14 of chapter 24, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if you be unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <clears throat> Joshua then, the close of this chapter, dies at the age of 110. And so, also very old, the son of Aaron will die, so the high priest. And then the book 
comes to a close. So this book is so closely tied to what comes before. It's such a perfect segue into, from what was told in the books of Moses that sometimes we speak even of the hexateuch. We talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books. Sometimes we can even talk about the hexateuch, the first six books, because it's so closely linked to them. And now in the book of Judges, we'll hear about next time about the, about the life of the Hebrew people now in their promised land before they have a king. Life will nevertheless will include some very important prefigurations of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time. All right, Katya, let me have it. <laughs> <laughs>